This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening and welcome. My name is Nigella Hilgarth and I'm the Executive Director of the Birch Aquarium at Scripps Institution of Oceanography at UC San Diego. And it gives me great pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker for the latest Jeffrey B. Graham Perspectives of Ocean Science lecture series. Now let me tell you a little bit about Michael Hedlin, tonight's speaker. He's uh, actually from something I didn't realize before. He's from Saskatoon, which is in Saskatchewan, Canada. And he told me some wonderful stories, that I, one in particular that I want to tell you tonight, and that is that after he's finished his bachelor's in engineering, he traveled for a little bit, he went to Europe, and he actually met his future wife. They talked for about two minutes and then went their separate ways. And then several months later, they both started a job in Alberta, Canada on the same day. And so they had a date, and it's now 31 years later. Um, so clearly, he believes in coincidences. Uh, and then after a brief stint in the oil industry, he went back to college, and he got a degree, a uh, master's in physics from the University of Alberta. Um, and then he considered um, doing a PhD program in Boston or in San Diego, and he and his wife had decided Harvard. And they went out to dinner. And in the restaurant, there were photographs of San Diego beaches. <laughs> and so he came to Scripps Institution of Oceanography here at UC San Diego. And another coincidence, his life has changed. Um, and so he did a PhD in Earth Science here from UC San Diego. And that was... Uh, he says it took five years, one longer than it should have because of the beach. <laughs> and now he is head of the Laboratory for Atmospheric Acoustics at Scripps at UC San Diego. And, and, and so we're delighted that he decided to stay in San Diego. And he studies the Earth's structure and really the, um, why the, the Earth is, is structured the way it is, but not only the solid Earth, but atmosphere and oceans and the interactions between them and how that impacts uh, the biosphere, which is all living things, including us. And so I'm very excited to um, introduce him tonight because I know he's going to talk about some things that have happened recently, listening to Earth's atmosphere, tuning into the sounds of our dynamic planet. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Michael Hedl. Thank you very much, Michael. Well, it's very nice to be here. Uh, thank you very much, Nigella. Um, well, I kind of uh, stumbled into this line of research. Um, I began my career uh, as a seismologist. And about 15 years ago, I thought I would look around for something really new, something really interesting to do. And I'd heard about um, these unheard sounds in the atmosphere that could travel all the way around the world. And I was really intrigued by that. I decided I'd have to learn more about that. And it. Uh, that was 15 years ago. I've uh, been spending pretty much all of my time uh, doing this, and, uh, and it's led in a lot of uh, unexpected uh, directions. So we study sound in the atmosphere. Um, what we do really is a, a lot like seismology, frankly. 
when there's a large earthquake, um, the ground shakes, buildings might fall down. Uh, the earthquake uh, will send seismic waves, maybe around the world, and these seismic waves will be picked up by seismometers. The recordings will be used by seismologists to, to understand you know, what happened at the source that generated all these seismic signals. But they can also use these signals to better understand uh, the nature of the in interior of the Earth. And so in, in infrasound, it's really very much the same thing. We have these massive events occurring in the atmosphere um, that may do a great deal of damage, but they're also going to generate really low-frequency sounds, or infrasound, as I'll explain in a few minutes. Um, and these signals uh, may, from a large source may travel all the way around the world. They'll be picked up by our sensors. We will use the recordings to try to figure out more about what happened at the source, but also use these signals to learn more about the atmosphere, learn things about the atmosphere that that maybe we're missing with satellites or with ground-based instruments. There's still more that we can learn from the atmosphere just by looking at the sound waves that travel through them. So this talk is largely about these unheard sounds in the atmosphere. Again, they're such low frequencies that we simply cannot hear them, but they surround us uh, all the time. So I'll talk about what they are. I'll talk about what causes them and uh, how they travel through the atmosphere to these great distances and what we can learn from them about the Earth and how we can use them for our benefit. Um, and a recurring theme in my research uh, and in this talk is the Earth as an integrated system. I don't just study the atmosphere. I mean, the more I started to look at sound waves in the atmosphere, the more I realized, I was reminded how much um, the different parts of the Earth interact with one another. And so that's the, inter the, the, the interconnectedness, interconnectedness uh, of the planet is a big part of my talk uh, tonight. So to describe all these things, I'm going to highlight a few very big events, and in particular, the meteor that uh, entered the Earth's atmosphere above Chelyabinsk, Russia, in the middle of February. So as I just uh, sort of touched on, the Earth is a system, um, and there have been many investigations of, of the Earth's interior using, interior using seismometers, or many investigations of the atmosphere using you know, satellites, using uh, microbarometers, uh, studies of the oceans using hydrophones, for example. But... Um, there haven't been nearly as many studies that really take the system, uh, the Earth as a system, and to, to take advantage of that and to use, use uh, many different types of sensors and see how the different parts of the, the system, the Earth system, interact. Just to give you an example, let's take a look at uh, some of the ocean. Um, and uh, we're just looking at uh, uh, the crust, the oceanic crust beneath the ocean. This is the ocean, of course, someone out for uh, a sailing trip. Let's just say that there's a fault in this crust, and in fact, the fault slides. It's what we call a thrust fault, where the, the higher part of the crust is pushed above the lower part of the crust. Well, what's going to happen? The water is incompressible, so when the crust moves up, the water will be pushed up above the crust, and now the water's suddenly in a position it doesn't want to be in. It's a fluid. It's going to flow away, and it will do just that. It's going to immediately flow away from the area where it's pushed up. Now, depending on how large the earthquake is, how large the, the surface of the ocean floor that was lifted um, and how much it was lifted by will determine how much water is actually moved up above its equilibrium position where, again, where it's, it's not going to want to stay. And um, if it's a lot of water, of course, this can lead to very large tsunami waves. So tsunami waves um, in the deep ocean might be just a few centimeters high, but they can travel at hundreds of kilometers per hour. They're very, very fast. But if you're in the deep ocean, you probably wouldn't even know that a tsunami wave passed you. But what happens is when a tsunami wave approaches land, 
the, 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 the seafloor comes up to a very shallow depth, and it starts to drag on the ocean waves, slow it down, and then this fast-moving water from the deep water, this fast-moving wave from the deep water starts to pile up on the, on the water that's already arrived uh, in shallow water, and the wave grows. It slows down and it grows to, a, unfortunately, a terrific height, and then it crashes ashore. For example, what happened, unfortunately, in 2004 um, in Indonesia. So this huge wave wasn't for a storm at sea. It wasn't because of a storm at sea. It was because of a, a movement of the earth beneath the, the sea that lifted the sea, lifted the water, and caused it to, uh, to flow uh, towards land. So this is just one really striking example of the earth system and how one part of the earth system will interact with another and how it can be extremely important to us. Another example is a volcano. Volcanoes are well known to be seismic uh, in nature. Uh, say we have a, a volcano, we have some seismic activity beneath the volcano, maybe due to the movement of magma, the slippage of some rocks. Now this is going to be readily recorded using seismometers, and this has been done many, many times. But this may lead to magma moving up through conduits toward the vent at the top of the volcano. If and when this leaves the volcano as a magma or is by a gas violently ejected from the volcano, maybe heavily laden with ash, then suddenly this event that used to be seismic is very, very acoustic. It's a brilliant acoustic event that we would best uh, study with, with microbarometers, with these acoustic instruments. So this is what we would call a seismoacoustic source. And it's just another example of how um, the, if we were to study the, the, the volcano just using seismometers or, or just using in, uh, our microbarometers, we would get an incomplete picture of what this source really was in its entirety. So it's just an example of how it's important to just remember that the different parts of the Earth are in, in communication. So um, we have an unbelievably broad uh, suite of instruments that we use to investigate every corner of the planet. Uh, just to give you a couple of examples that are uh, really relevant to this talk, uh, we have the Global Seismographic Network. This is a uh, network that's run by uh, the United States Geological Survey and also by the Incorporated Research Institutions for Seismology, otherwise known as IRIS. It's about 150 stations uh, worldwide, and it's grown over the years, and it's led uh, in directions that we had never imagined several decades ago. And we've learned a tremendous amount about the, the nature of the, the interior of the Earth. We now have um, what we call an IMS infrasound network. This is IMS stands for International Monitoring uh, System. Um, this is a network that I'll explain in more detail a little bit later. It's a network of uh, infrasound stations. Um, the seismic network has, uh, of course, seismometers, three component seismometers at each location. This infrasound network at each one of these locations has a complete array of sensors. And what I mean by an array of sensors is that there are just a number of sensors that are distributed across an area, and when a signal reaches this station, it's going to cross the, the array from some direction, and based on the time delays of the signal arriving at these different uh, sensors, we can figure out the direction the signal came from and how fast it was traveling. So we can get a lot more information about the signal that's propagating around the world from these arrays than we can from single uh, sensors. Now, this map might look kind of easy, uh, kind of a uh, clean map, very simple map of the uh, infrasound network. I've, um, with, with a, a crew of people, built several of these stations, and it's definitely hard work, although as the, the boss, I, was, uh, I had the easy job. I didn't need to carry heavy pails around in my head. This was a station that we built in uh, Cape Verde, Africa. So a tremendous amount of work has gone into building these networks uh, for, for various purposes, including basic research. So infrasound is a term that people aren't uh, very familiar with, I think. 
So I thought I would explain just what infrasound is by referring to infrared. So infrared, I think, is a, is a term that people are quite familiar with. Infrared is the part of the electromagnetic spectrum that's, um, that's at frequencies that are lower than the visible part of the electromagnetic spectrum where we can see things. Um, it's, it's called infrared. It, it can otherwise be considered uh, heat energy. But uh, it's just infrared uh, exists at lower frequencies than what we can see. Just in the same way, infrasound exists at lower frequencies in the acoustic spectrum than what we can actually hear. And I'll explain that in a little more detail in just a moment. But I show this slide basically to impress upon you, I hope, that if we were to look at, say, the Andromeda galaxy using um, optical wavelengths, what we could see through a uh, telescope, we would see quite a different um, thing than if we uh, look at uh, the Andromeda galaxy using infrared. So, just as we can investigate um, the, the universe uh, uh, in, in various ways using the different frequencies of electromagnetic energy, we can investigate the Earth um, in different ways by using different frequencies of acoustic energy. So the acoustic spectrum, um, we, we divide it into three parts. One, um, the ultrasound part, uh, which is above 20,000 hertz. These frequencies are so high that we can't uh, hear them. Some animals, like porpoises and bats, um, apparently can, can hear these frequencies, but we can't. By definition, um, we can only, uh, the range of human hearing or the audible part of the acoustic spectrum lies from about 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz. So if you, if you think of the deepest rumble that you've ever heard, um, that's probably a sound that was somewhere down around 20 or 30 hertz. It's a very, very low frequency part of the acoustic, the, the, the audible part of the acoustic spectrum. But to an infrasound scientist, um, that's really, really high frequency. We, we, don't even, we don't even look at frequencies that high. Um, we study sounds that are at considerably lower frequencies. They're at such low frequencies that we wouldn't even know that they're here unless if it hadn't been for the instruments that we use to record them. So we're interested in infrasound, I think mainly for two reasons. One is that these really large geophysical events in the Earth, whether they're earthquakes or volcanoes um, or ocean waves, for example, um, they generate low-frequency uh, sound waves because they're so large, they generate low-frequency sound. And infrasound is very valuable to us because it can just travel great distances from a large source like this meteor over Russia. Um, they can travel all the way around the world. So a little history of infrasound um, before I tell you more about it. I'm going to go back to um, the, the U.S. Civil War. Um, in 1862, if General Grant had known a little bit more about uh, infrasound, if he had attended a lecture on infrasound, he might have, the Battle of Luca may have turned out quite differently. What happened on, the sept, on September 19th, 1862, is that um, the Confederate forces under Price were uh, going to engage the, the Union forces under Rosecrans and Ord, but apparently Rosecrans took a wrong turn. He didn't have GPS. He, he got lost, and he was delayed getting into uh, Luca, Mississippi. Grant knew about that, and he said, all right, talking to his general Ord, he said, wait until you hear the sound of battle, and once you do, then go in and engage Price. Well, what had actually happened that day was that there was a strong wind blowing from the northwest to the southeast. So that placed Ord and Grant in what we call an acoustic shadow. The wind was blowing over them. It was blowing the sound from the battle that was actually happening um, in the opposite direction from him. He didn't know that the battle was happening until the battle ended. And by then, when they entered the town, the battle was basically over. So um, infrasounds kind of played an important role um, in various ways. The largest sound that we uh, know of um, occurred in 1883. It was the, the cataclysmic eruption of uh, Krakatoa. 
Krakatoa eruption basically erased the entire island and um, it was heard amazingly by people 3,000 kilometers away in Perth, Australia and 4,800 kilometers away on Rodriguez Island um, across the Indian Ocean. This is a sound they didn't need instruments for, they could actually hear. Um, they said it sounded like, uh, like very loud cannon fire. Um, so we've known of no other source that could be heard at anywhere nearly that range um, by, by people just listening. Um, and of course it generated very, very low frequency uh, waves, gravity waves we call them, I'll explain those in a, in a few minutes, that, were, that traveled around the world several times. So this is really an enormous event. Tunguska has been in the press lately because of the Russian um, uh, meteor. Um, in 1908, uh, above the Tunguska River, we believe a, a small asteroid entered the Earth's atmosphere at a fairly steep angle. It blew up at a fairly low altitude, and as it did that, um, it flattened trees over an area of about 800 square miles. So just to give you an idea of how big that really is, um, Leonid Kulik, uh, I think in 1927, years after the event, he went into the area with a team to figure out you know, what on Earth had happened. He'd heard various reports, and he found trees flattened in, in a radial pattern around uh, um, right about this point here, and eventually this was mapped to give us this map here, and plotted at scale with the city of San Diego. It's about the size of the metropolitan San Diego. So that really was an enormous event. I'm going to compare that with the one that just happened a couple months ago to tell you why we kind of got lucky in February. World War I, uh, infrasound was used to track aircraft. Um, the uh, then Sergeant Jean Perrin, who eventually went on to win a Nobel Prize, not for, this, not for inventing this contraption, but for his work in particle physics, um, this, is a, he, this is a contraption where he turns this wheel to change the angle relative to the vertical and his assistant will walk it around in a circle. So he can, he can orient this to try to find um, sound waves from German aircraft that are approaching. If the sound waves hit this, this uh, listening device uh, at the right angle, then this, the device amplifies the sounds and feeds it into his ear so he can actually hear them. So he can detect German aircraft uh, very early. Of course, uh, 1945, the detonation uh, in New Mexico of the, uh, of the plutonium bomb. Um, this really was the, the start of the, the nuclear age. And as you can imagine, um, atmospheric nuclear explosions are immense sources of really low frequency sound waves. And so the nu nuclear age really gave uh, birth to the, the field of infrasound after these, these occasional uh, unusual events like Tunguska and Krakatoa. This was really the beginning of the, the field uh, of infrasound. What followed after the uh, decades after 1945 were several nuclear test ban treaties to try to limit nuclear testing, and they, those were followed in the 1990s by the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, which seeks to ban nuclear tests in all environments in the atmosphere, the oceans, and underground. But that treaty comes with a monitoring system which con consists of several networks, including a seismic network to, to monitor the Earth's interior, a hydrophone network to monitor the oceans, and the infrasound network to, uh, to listen for nuclear explosions uh, in the atmosphere. So this network, which we're using for basic research, um, was born because of the need to monitor the planet for nuclear uh, explosions. So fortunately, these are not happening in the atmosphere. Um, and so while the network was built to, to detect events like this, it's also detecting a wide range of natural and man-made um, phenomena that are generating these really low frequency waves that are being detected by these stations. And so the scientific community has been able to use the data for basic research to learn how to tell the difference between these various um, sources and nuclear explosions so that 
when the, if the day comes when there is a nuclear explosion, we'll be able to tell the difference. Um, but we can also use the data for uh, basic research. I know this is kind of overly dramatic, but if an asteroid that big hit the Earth, it'd be a whopping big uh, infrasound signal that I'm sure the scientific community would scramble to analyze. So just a few words of how infrasound is generated. Well, basically, all of the things that you saw in the earlier slide were really large. There may be supersonic objects or large explosions um, or, say, a large storm. The common factor in all these sources is that they just happen to move a lot of air. They compress a lot of air. And when air is compressed, it's going to radiate sound. And if you compress a very large area, then these sound waves that are radiated will have very low frequencies. That's just the nature of uh, the generation of the waves. The bigger the source is, the lower the frequencies are that will be generated. So this is a crust. Let's say this crust happens to have a fault. And again, the fault slides. It's a thrust fault. So it lifts the Earth over a fairly large area. And of course, um, it compresses the air above. So it's different than what generated the tsunami earlier. The water was incompressible. But the air is compressible. It gets squeezed, and then it radiates uh, sound. So I'm just going to play you part of a recording of an earthquake that occurred in Chile years ago, just to give you an idea of how the sound, what kind of sounds are that we're, we're listening to. And again, all these sounds were inaudible. And what I've done is I've compressed the time. I've sped the recording up so that we can actually hear it. So this is a recording that's been sped up 400 times. So that sounded like a gunshot. That was an earthquake in, uh, in Chile. So I'm going, to tell you, I'm going to tell you more about that because it's a much more interesting source than just that gunshot sound. But first, I want to say a few words about how sound travels, just sort of the basic main principles of sound propagation. Um, it's also basically the refraction of sound uh, through the atmosphere. So let's say you're standing over here. You're a few miles, say, from the freeway. And it's a normal day where the air on the, on, near the ground is warm and the air uh, above is cool. And again, this is a normal situation because the UV from the sun will strike the Earth's surface, heat it up, and then the Earth's surface will radiate heat into the air above and warming it up. So it's just normal for the, for the air just above the ground to be warmer than the air higher up in the atmosphere. Now, a basic principle of sound propagation is that the sound will refract or turn away from areas where the sound speed is high. And it turns out that sound speed directly relates to the temperature. So wherever the air is warm, the sound is going to want to refract away from that uh, area. Secondly, the winds are really important. If you're here a few miles away from the freeway and the wind is blowing over you, just like it was blowing over General Grant and General Ord, um, that it's going to, it's going to inhibit the, the propagation of sound from this source back to you. It's going to help dissipate that sound. And so it's going to be really hard for you here to hear any uh, freeway noise. But if the situation's reversed, then you can hear it very clearly. You can probably all remember mornings, say, in the winter where it's really cold. Um, maybe there's a temperature inversion. The ground is cool. If it's warmer above, the sound's going to turn in the opposite direction, away from that warm air, back to the ground. And especially if the wind happens to be blowing away from the freeway toward you, then you'll hear it very clearly. So some days you're going to hear the freeway, some days you won't. And it's probably because of either the temperature of the air or because of the wind. So this is what happens at a very local scale. If we take a look at a global scale, it's really the same thing. It's just the temperature of the air and the speed of the wind. So if we look at the entire atmosphere, the temperature of the atmosphere, 
um, it varies like I'm showing with these curves here. There's two curves. Um, the red curve is temperature as a function of altitude from the surface of the Earth up to 120 kilometers altitude uh, at the equator. And blue is the temperature at 80 degrees north, so close to the North Pole. Uh, you can see that the um, Earth's atmosphere is divided up into four main layers. And what we're showing here is just the temperature uh, of the air from cool temperatures to warm temperatures. And I put Mount Everest here for scale, just to give you an idea of how large the scale is, unlike what I showed you in a previous couple of slides. It's the troposphere is the lowest layer, the stratosphere, then the mesosphere is at a, a higher level, and then finally the thermosphere in the upper atmosphere. So the reason we have these four layers is because of the, the, uh, how the temperature is varying. Now, the troposphere temperature is warm right at the Earth's surface for the reasons I gave earlier, because of the solar heating of the ground, which then heats the air above the ground. And under normal conditions, the temperature goes down with altitude up to about 15 kilometers altitude. And then it turns around due to heating in, in the ozone layer, uh, very good at heating higher up in, in the atmosphere. In the stratosphere, the, the temperature turns around and increases as we go up through the stratosphere. So the troposphere is called the troposphere because it's an inherently instable layer of the atmosphere. You have cool air above warm air. The cool air is dense. The warm air is buoyant, and they just want to trade places. And so there's this turning within the, this layer of the atmosphere, hence the name troposphere. But the stratosphere is the opposite. You have warm, buoyant air above cool air. So that's just a naturally stable arrangement. And so it's just a neatly stratified layer of the atmosphere. The mesosphere cools again with altitude, and finally the thermosphere the temperature increases very, very rapidly in the thermosphere. So when sound is traveling through the atmosphere, it doesn't just go straight from one point to another. It, gets turn, it turns away from the warm air. So it's going to turn um, back to the ground in the stratosphere, usually, and it will turn back within the thermosphere. But the other piece of the puzzle here is not just, it's not just the temperature, but, oh yeah, this is a slide where I show, instead of the temperature, I'm showing the actual speed of sound. On this diagram, the speed of sound increases from 260 meters per second up to 380 meters per second. So if someone talks to you about the speed of sound, it's really not a constant. It's, it's a very variable thing. But the other factor that's really important is the wind. Just like in the highway noise example, the wind's very important. Well, it's also very important on a, on a global scale. Um, without going into the details, I'll just tell you that high up in the stratosphere at about 50 kilometers altitude are these very strong winds that in the northern hemisphere in the summertime they go from east to west and they might be 50, 60, 70 meters per second. So they're very, very fast winds. Um, but these winds reverse twice per year. They're how the planet moves uh, energy about. In the winter, the winds are going in the opposite direction. They're going from west to east in the northern hemisphere at 50, 60, 70, up to 100 meters per second. So those winds are very, very strong. And if you think of how fast the speed of sound is, wind going 50, 60, or 70 meters per second is a good fraction of the, the speed of sound due to the, the temperature of the air. Um, you can imagine it has a really significant effect on how the sound travels through the atmosphere. Well, basically, um, uh, this is an example, an actual example um, from Utah in the summertime where we have an explosion I'm going to show you in a moment occurring right here and the summer winds are going to blow the sound within the stratosphere uh, to the west. So sound propagation to the west is going to be really efficient. The sound will bounce again and again and again between the top of the stratosphere and the ground. It'll just 
um, resonate within this layer. Whereas if you look in the opposite direction, you see essentially no sound propagation, nothing in the stratosphere, maybe some sound in the thermosphere. But the winds blow the sound to the west, just like they did in 1862, blew the sound away from General Ord. Okay, so just to give you an example, here's an actual explosion that occurred uh, in June of 2007. It was a very large explosion. It was, they were destroying a rocket motor uh, on that day. And there were a lot of stations that recorded this signals, infrasound signals from this explosion, but I'm just gonna show you one about 800 kilometers away um, in Washington state. So if we take a look at the actual recorded pressure variation at this location from this explosion, Strangely, what we see is the signal repeating itself. We don't hear the source once. We hear it three times very clearly and maybe a fourth time. So the question is, why are we hearing this so many times? Well, it's for the reason I just gave a moment ago that we're here relative to this explosion over here and the sound is just bouncing, it's refracting up and down through this stratospheric duct so that it's able to go through the stratosphere once and reach the station. It goes through the stratosphere twice it reaches the station a little later. It goes to the stratosphere three times and reaches the station still later. So we hear the same source three times. So what does this source sound like? Sounds like a heartbeat. It's, it's just the way the atmosphere takes the original simple sound and repeats it, so we hear it several times. But the other thing uh, that I want to point out about this signal is that you know, the explosion's an instant in time. It's just, it's bang and it's, it's done. It, it lasts a very short time. But these signals that we're recording, if you look at this time axis, you can see these signals last about a minute each. So the question is, how would a source that's just an impulse in time give us signals 800 kilometers away that not only uh, occur three times, I've tried to explain that, but, but each signal lasts for an entire minute? Well. As we all know, if you look up in the sky at a star, you can see that on a clear night, you see that that star is gonna twinkle. It's going to, its apparent position is going to move. And the reason why that star is twinkling is because um, there's moving air between the star and, and the ground. It just makes the, the light waves refract uh, um, in, a, in, in a constantly changing way. And so the apparent position of that star moves around. And astronomers have, have found ways to, uh, to eliminate that, to have clear images of the star. But that same movement of the air that's affecting the starlight, making a twinkle, is affecting our sound waves. And I'm gonna give you one example to try to explain why. Uh, much of it has to do with what we call gravity waves. These are the really long period, really low frequency waves that are produced, um, that can be produced by really large sources like Krakatoa, but also can be caused by, uh, for example, wind blowing over mountains. Remember this example where where water was lifted and then was out of its equilibrium state and it flowed away. Well, a similar thing is happening in the atmosphere when there's wind flowing across the ground, it hits a mountain range, and what's going to happen, of course, is that that wind will be directed up and then it's going to oscillate. Um, it was originally at an equilibrium level. Up here, it's out of its equilibrium state. It wants to fall again. So under gravity, it's pulled down, but it has momentum as it's going down, it overshoots, buoyancy lifts it up, and then again it, it oscillates under the, uh, the opposing effects of buoyancy and gravity until it gradually damps out. But you can have these long period waves appearing uh, in the sky um, because of airflow over mountains. There are other causes like big convective storms. And often, if the, if the conditions are right, water in the air condenses and forms these 
lens-shaped clouds. And if you've looked up in the sky and you've seen banded clouds in the sky, you very likely were looking at the effects of a gravity wave traveling across the Earth's surface. So the Earth's atmosphere is full of these gravity waves, uh, turbulent waves, and it affects starlight and it also affects our sound waves. But the way it affects our sound waves is that um, it, it, a lot of things are happening when the sound waves are interacting with this small-scale structure. But one thing is, is that uh, a simple way to describe it is that the, the sound is diverted along a wide range of paths. Some paths are fast, some paths are slow, and the net result is that all this energy that started in one big bang over here gets stretched out in time to last for a minute. So it gets repeated because of this, and it gets stretched out because of things like gravity waves. Okay, another example, you know that earthquake I showed you a bit earlier? It was a magnitude 7.8 earthquake in Chile in 2005. That earthquake was recorded by three infrasound arrays in global network. And what I played for you earlier was the recording of the ground moving, pressing the air. Um, just that part of it recorded at this close-in station, which was 410 kilometers away from the source. Um, let me play more of this event. You're going to hear two things. The gunshot sound from the actual earthquake, and then you'll hear something else. Okay, that whooshing sound was swaying mountains. To a seismologist, an earthquake is movement of the ground at the epicenter, and maybe a lot of other things, but to an atmospheric acoustician, these events can be considerably more. What happens commonly when there's an earthquake in a mountainous area is that the ground shakes at the epicenter, seismic waves travel out from this earthquake, and then they cause the mountains to sway. And the mountains might sway for 30, 40 minutes. So with these three arrays, these scientists were able to, remember the arrays have many sensors so that they can, they can tell the direction that the signals are coming from. And with these three arrays, they're able to figure out where all these late signals were coming from. So let me play this recording. It's from a, a colleague of mine, Alexis Lepichon in France. I'm going to show a recording from the close-in array the second more distant array, and the third array that was farther away. And this, this um, wonderful uh, display will show you what parts of the mountains are swaying um, and being recorded by these stations. So let's listen to this one last time. You can see this vertical bar showing you where we are in time. We're going to hear the actual source at the closest station. The swaying mountains sped up 400 times, recorded the closest station, and, and then the swaying mountains recorded at the slightly farther away station, the swaying over here, and then finally the most distant station, 2,300 kilometers away, um, the mountains are swaying right around here and sending sound waves to these stations. So this is another example of how interconnected the planet is. You have an earthquake, and suddenly you have mountains swaying for 30 or 40 minutes. It happens... It's not at all uncommon. May 26, 2003, an earthquake uh, in Japan caused much of the, 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 the Japanese islands, to, the mountains, to sway for over 40 minutes. Another source that we, we spend a lot of time studying are volcanoes. They're very active acoustic sources, like I've already explained. Let me show you a recording, uh, thanks to uh, another colleague, uh, Milton Garces at the University of Hawaii, um, a recording of resonance within a, vol a volcano. This is basically vibration within a chamber inside this volcano. So volcanoes make a wide range of uh, sounds. 
and a lot of them are pretty spooky sounding. Another odd beast in, 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 in the infrasound zoo, as we call it, are called sprites. These are electrical discharges from cloud tops where there's a, where there's a thunder strike, where there's a lightning strike going down. Um, but above in the upper atmosphere, up to the ionosphere, is another electrical discharge that we have, uh, uh, our, our colleagues at the University of Alaska recorded very nicely. This is what they sound like. These are sprites. Occasionally uh, thought to be because of high-flying uh, uh, aircraft uh, for, uh, for them to crash. All right, I want to move on now to the, uh, the meteor that, that entered the Earth's atmosphere, um, the asteroid, the small asteroid that entered the Earth's atmosphere and turned into a meteor as it was burning up. This occurred on the 15th of February um, uh, of this year. And we've been so fascinated with this event because it's considered to be the largest um, uh, meteor in over a century. That was a picture that was taken very close to uh, the meteor by someone quick with a camera. So the meteor is considered to be about the size of a house, about 65 feet in diameter. Um, that traffic circle outside the Birch Aquarium, that meteor would fit pretty nicely in there. But the mass was estimated to be about 10,000 tons. So consider something 65 feet across weighing about as much as the Eiffel Tower. You can guess that the rock in this meteor is really quite dense. Um, the meteor was traveling through the atmosphere at about 50 times the speed of sound. That's 17.4 kilometers per second. And the meteor had been, the asteroid had been um, traveling through space for billions of years, but once it hit the Earth's atmosphere, it's like hitting a brick wall that died within about 15 seconds. The explosive yield of the event is estimated to be about 300 kilotons. That's about 20 times the yield of the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. Although, to put it in perspective, it's about 1% of the yield of the largest nuclear explosion that was ever detonated in the atmosphere, believe it or not. That was about uh, 50 megatons back in 1961. It was early in the morning, February 15th in Siberia, so it was cold out. Most people were inside. They're awake, but they're up. The damage to the city was generally light. Uncounted thousands of windows were blown in but a couple of buildings were damaged uh, structurally. The air pressure from this wave was considered to be about 5 to 10% of the background air pressure, which might not sound like much, but I'll, the videos I'll show you, I think, will, sh will demonstrate how big a signal that really was. So here's the map. This is Chelyabinsk. This is the track of the meteor moving at Mach 50, so it took several seconds to cross this entire area. Um, the zinc plant in Chelyabinsk, the, 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 the ceiling collapsed. And on world markets, uh, shortly thereafter, the price of zinc rose a little bit. So we know that's the first time the price of zinc has increased because of a meteor. Um, <laughs> and a hockey rink was damaged. Hockey games were canceled. And we also know it's the first time ever that a meteor led to the cancellation of hockey games. So those are two of the more dramatic uh, uh, things other than the broken windows. And unfortunately, about 1,500 people were injured. As far as we know, no one died. But let's show you some cartoons about what, what, what was happening. So, the meteor streaked across the sky at uh, 50 times the speed of sound. It compresses the air in front of it, turns it into a plasma, which then surrounds the meteor and starts uh, burning it up. So let's take a look at um, what it looked like crossing the sky. Now, the fellow's going to speak in Russian in a moment. Um, I asked a Russian colleague of mine to translate this, and he refused to translate it, just saying it was a lot of bad words. <laughs> so if you speak Russian, you might know what's going on. He stopped at a red light and watched up over here. Early in the morning, sun is rising. 
So it was brighter than the sun. So that's what something looks like when it's about 40 kilometers away, moving 50 times the speed of sound. It really hauls across the sky. So eventually, this was a stony meteorite. It had fractures inside. It wasn't considered to be a very strong meteorite. Eventually, the temperature and pressure was such that it, it simply overcame the strength of the rock, and it blew up, which is what commonly happens to meteors. It blew up. Shock waves spread out from the meteor, struck the ground, bounced, and then swept across the ground. Now, what happens is, um, is that if the sound, if a shock wave bounces off the ground like this, then there might be constructive interference of the downgoing shock wave with the upgoing bouncing shock wave to increase the, uh, the pressure at, uh, in this area as it's sweeping across the ground. It can double the pressure um, and obviously increase the damage. So that's called the mock stem. So let's take a look at a couple of videos I'm going to first show you a video, what I call the ground zero video, which is basically beneath the main explosion of the meteor, as it's at about an altitude of 31 kilometers. The music is, uh, is not, it's pretty loud, it's pretty annoying, so we're going to turn the volume down a little bit. Uh, I've got to play this. So, Flash occurs, they take two minutes out of the video because the shock wave is now coming down to the ground. It takes a couple of minutes and then you hear it and then the snow gets knocked off the roof and the, the birds start flying away. So this is what it was like at ground zero. And you might think this is a bad place to be, but actually it's not so bad because the sound shock wave is coming right down on top of you. It's not going to blow you over. It's just going to hit you from above. Let's take a look at a different situation. A video taken indoors at about 35 kilometers from the explosion, 36 kilometers from the explosion. This is just a, an indoor camera uh, recording activity in a hallway. There's the flash. See this clock up here? They took two minutes away uh, from the video again because the flash is instantaneous, but the shock wave um, takes two minutes to hit the ground. Now look at her and watch this unfortunate guy near the window. So that's 36 kilometers away. They're getting hit by this shockwave moving across the ground. And unfortunately, it's the middle of February. It's cold. It's early in the morning. People saw a flash. Some of them went to the windows, naturally, to figure out what was happening. And while they're watching, a couple minutes later, the shockwave hits the windows and blows them in. And uh, a lot of people were um, injured. Fortunately, not very seriously. Again, partly what I'm saying here is how the interconnectedness of the planet. You have this shockwave hitting the ground. The ground isn't perfectly rigid. It's elastic. And so as the shockwave is hitting the ground, it's going to cause the, the ground to vibrate over a very large area. And as it turns out, um, this led to a, uh, a, a, surf, a surface seismic wave that was recorded at stations out to about 4,000 kilometers um, from, uh, from the explosion. This is a, a map of the Earth with some topography. Here's the location of the explosion. Here are the locations of the seismic stations out to 40 degrees. And this is a, a record section, we call it. It's, a, it's, it's all the recordings made at all these stations arranged as a function of distance from the source out to about 4,000 kilometers away from the source. And so what we can see, we see some signals coming from an earthquake in Tonga. But we also see the surface wave, very large surface wave going all the way out to 4,000 kilometers. So this really amazed us. You have an explosion in the atmosphere, and this is big enough to lead to cause a, a surface wave, a seismic wave, to not only be excited, which is rare, but to travel all the way out to 40 degrees. So also, 
the shock wave is expanding, it's compressing the air, it's going to turn into an acoustic wave, a sound wave that's going to travel a very great distance. We'll bring back the, the international um, uh, monitoring system infrasound network again, and stations around the world recorded this event. I'm going to show you a recording from about 533 kilometers away in Kazakhstan. Again, it's an array of sensors. There's several sensors in the array, so they're all making their own recording of the signal. It looks identical, but there are subtle differences and timing differences that were very valuable to uh, figure out where the, the sound came from. So the recording sped up uh, 200 times, was like this. Not quite as loud, but it's, uh, it, that was um, a sped up recording of, of the, the meter that was made at a distance of 533 kilometers. So in fact, the sound went all the way around the planet. 35 hours later, it made its way back to Chelyabinsk, was recorded instrumentally, and then it kept going. We're still not quite sure how far it went in total. But we do know that across the United States, of course, having gone way around the world, it went across the United States. And we took advantage of this, this incredible um, network of sensors uh, in the United States called the US Array Transportable Array. This was deployed by Earthscope, which is a program of the National Science Foundation. Um, the recording, each station in this, in this network, there's 400 stations uh, on a Cartesian grid spanning about 2 million square kilometers. There's a broadband seismic station, three component seismic station at each one of these triangles but also a complete suite of pressure sensors, uh, microbarometers, so that we could, although we didn't record it seismically, it was recorded acoustically. So um, to take another look at the, uh, um, the, the network, um, the event occurred here. We had sound waves traveling across the polar region from uh, Russia across the United States. Um, the network was at a range of between seven and 10,000 kilometers away uh, from the source and uh, I'm going to show you some, uh, some recordings. I have what I, what I call four transects. Um, these were made by Catherine de Groot-Hedlund, my wife of 31 years. Um, she, she took data from all of these stations in these transects um, along these radial lines away from the source and, uh, and uh, took a look at uh, what, the, um, what the data looked like. Um, so in these four transects going from west to east, you can see this it was noisy in this transect, but you can see a clear signal about 500, uh, 450, uh, 470 minutes after the, the meteor on the west coast uh, and progressively later uh, on the east coast. So what we see is that at this scale, it's kind of hard to see. The recordings actually on the next slide, it's a little bit clearer. What we see in the data are that, again, this event that lasted about 15 seconds, like nearly instant in time, um, led to signals across the United States that lasted for 50, 60, or 70 minutes. This event was so large, we have to modify our, our software to analyze it properly because the sound is traveling through an atmosphere that's constantly changing. So we're going to have a lot to learn from this event, but um, the signals from this instantaneous event lasting um, um, you know, 50, 60, or 70 minutes are really extraordinary, and something in the atmosphere, perhaps all this small scale, the gravity waves that I talked about earlier, have modified the signal and stretched it out to this great length. So this is what it looked like on the East Coast and uh, looked quite different on the West Coast. So this, this work is just going on. Um, we know that we're using this to take a look at, at a global scale, the speed of sound, to, to compare the data with the, with the models to see if the models are accurate. And, and again, we're just scratching the surface. There's a lot more that we can do with this. So why was Tunguska so damaging? Why was Chelyabinsk 
uh, not as bad, as bad as it was. Um, what we believe happened um, with the Chelyabinsk meteor was that it came in just below horizontal, about 17 degrees below the horizontal, and it was 65 feet across. And so it was big, but it wasn't enormous. But when it exploded, moving at Mach 50, much of the shockwave energy was directed um, nearly horizontally, not directly down to the ground where the people were concentrated, but mainly relatively harmlessly um, nearly horizontally through the atmosphere. So the shock waves that did hit the ground weren't nearly as strong as the shock waves that eventually dissipated in the atmosphere. Tunguska was also considered to be a stony meteorite, so not a very strong one. That's the explanation why uh, people haven't uh, been able to find uh, pieces of it. Um, hundreds of pieces of the Chelyabinsk meteor have been found. But the Tunguska meteor was larger, um, and it is believed to have also come in at a much steeper angle. And so by the time it's, it, it, it went critical and exploded. It was much closer to the, the ground. And it was not only closer to the ground, but the shock wave was then directed more steeply at the ground, and that's what led to the flattening of trees across 800 uh, square miles. So the doomsday scenario is uh, an even larger meteor that's uh, a, a metallic meteor, which would be much stronger, much less likely to, to be disintegrated while it's shooting through the atmosphere. And a meteor that is directed uh, nearly vertically would direct um, most of its explosive force right on the ground. And that would be, that's obviously an extremely unlikely event, but it's, uh, that we were fortunate with Chelyabinsk that the angle was such that it was relatively harmless. So what really drives us um, to do this research? There's really a lot of things that we're after. One is a, a practical uh, uh, interest or, or an applied interest. Um, we know that, uh, that the infrasound data that we record is um, useful for monitoring volcanoes. We can have a volcanic eruption that might be missed by satellites. Satellites don't monitor everywhere, uh, or it might be cloudy. The satellites might have an obscured view of a volcano known to be active. Um, it might be uh, recorded seismically, but again, maybe seismometers aren't in the area, or maybe when the volcano is really reaching a critical point where all this material is going to be vented into the atmosphere, that uh, that uh, that it won't be seismic anymore, it'll be acoustic. So these infrasound stations are turning out to be very valuable for monitoring, for early detection of, of, of hazardous volcanic eruptions. Um, what we're most concerned about are volcanic eruptions where the material ejected is really rich in ash because there have been a number of examples where this ash has been ejected high into the atmosphere and has led to uh, airplanes having to be um, landed immediately because they... Uh, they, they, they damage the aircraft. So infrasound has a very practical application monitoring um, for, for volcanic eruptions. Um, and for other hazards, uh, we can monitor uh, acoustically. And of course, for nuclear testing, we we're constantly uh, monitor using infrasound data for these um, uh, unusual signals in the atmosphere that might be the sign of a nuclear test. But fortunately, we haven't uh, recorded any. It's also to satisfy really a basic human curiosity about how the planet works. As I've sort of touched on through this talk, uh, that the Earth is a system. We have an atmosphere. We have the geosphere, which is the solid Earth. We have the hydrosphere, which is all the water on the planet, but mainly the oceans. We have the cryosphere, which is the frozen, uh, um, the ice caps on the planet. And all of these parts of the Earth uh, interact. One affects the other. You might have a meteor visitor from outer space blowing up in the atmosphere, 
the shock waves from within the atmosphere may move to the Earth's surface and, and lead to a seismic event, or you might have an earthquake that causes mountains to sway, and as the mountains sway, they just radiate more acoustic energy. So we just have this basic curiosity about how the planet uh, works. Um, but I think it's, it's really more than that. I mean, we know that, that the planet, the different um, parts of the planet interact uh, a, a, with each other, but they also interact with us. For example, the, the tsunami example that I gave you. And so I think that by using infrasound, by using all these tools, we get a better, much better understanding of how the Earth functions as a system, how the different parts of the Earth interact with one another, and how they eventually uh, affect us. And as we've seen much in the press lately, how what we do is affecting the rest of the planet. It's now clear that this is happening. So we just have a basic interest in understanding um, how the Earth operates, the Earth that we live on. So I just wanted to acknowledge um, various contributors to this talk. Uh, Dr. Milton Garces at the University of Hawaii. Um, you can find him at, at iSoundHunter. He's the, the infrasound hunter. He's got a lot of interesting recordings on his website. Um, Dr. Alexei Lepichon gave the, the recordings from, uh, from uh, South America and also that example from Japan. Uh, Catherine de Headland, my wife, uh, is working with the US Array Transportable Array data to better understand um, the signals across the United States. My former student, Dr. Rob Matoza, um, has provided um, uh, some uh, recordings for this talk. And I also um, am very grateful to the National Science Foundation for funding our research and for funding these great uh, deployments like the US Array Transportable Array and, and funding much of the operation of the Global Seismographic Network. Um, Earthscope, a program of the National Science Foundation, uh, it has built the Transportable Array, this big 400 station network that is uh, in the United States that I showed you toward the end of the talk. And of course, IRIS um, and the USGS, I'd like to thank them as well. So that was my talk. Uh, I think we have some time for questions. Oh, uh, good question. So uh, you, uh, she asked uh, why there was such a concentration of stations on the eastern part of the country. Um, I didn't have time to explain this, but it's the US Array Transportable Array. And it's just this massive project where 400 broadband stations start on the west coast. And each station, each station stays in place for two, two, two years. And then they have a team that picks it up on the west side, hands it over to a team that then deploys it on the eastern side. So it's hopscotching its way across the country. And so it's been moving since about 2004, I think. So now that it's 2013, it's nearly on the east coast. And, uh, and partway through, a colleague of mine, Frank Vernon, and I, we received funding from the National Science Foundation to add all of these infrasound microphones to all of these stations. So we turned it into a seismoacoustic network. So it's near the end of its um, lifespan in the continental United States. Once it rolls off the East Coast, they're going to take it to Alaska for, uh, for another deployment. Um, the question was the, the, the recordings on the East Coast versus the West Coast, whether the sound traveled from one way to the other. It actually came across the pole. And so um, the way the, we're still trying to figure out why, but the speed of the sound from, from Russia over the pole to the west coast was faster than the speed of sound uh, over the pole to the east coast. So we're trying to figure out why. We think we understand why. But So the answer to the question was, it wasn't really either. It just came from the north, and it just swept across the continental United States. <laughs> Didn't say anything about elephants. Uh, the question, the slide showed elephants communicating by infrasound. Um, uh, Katie Payne at Cornell is, is the expert, uh, as far as I know, in bioacoustics. Uh, she's one of, the, one of the experts, at least. Uh, she has studied sound vocalizations of elephants. And this is really kind of out of our domain. Um, elephant, elephants communicate at a pretty high frequency. They're pretty close to 20 hertz. 
So that's really at the upper range of where we work. Um, we're kind of stuck with what the Earth's doing at much lower frequencies. So um, I didn't say much about it, but, but my understanding is that elephants do generate very low frequency sound waves, and they can communicate over many miles with each other uh, using that because, as I said earlier, these sound waves dissipate very slowly. The question was, how did I make the ultra-low frequency sounds available to us? It's um, what we call time compression. It's, like, it's a recording that might take an hour, but we speed it up maybe by 600 times. So an hour is compressed to a very short time. And so the, the frequencies, which might be, say, many seconds period that are well below the range we can hear, um, when we compress the time axis, we kind of fool the system to make it think that these were actually audible sounds. So we can actually just speed them up and listen to them. So it's just a very long recording made to occur really over a short time. It allows us to tune into this other world that we otherwise wouldn't hear. Well, thank you very much, Mike. That was fascinating. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.